0: So again, we're stuck with you know with uncertain action and uncertain results, and yet the need for doing something. I think we need with that to recognize the impossibility of not acting. For not acting, you know, whether it's out of caution or self-interest or whatever, we, we cannot act for very good reasons, but not acting has effects just as well as acting does. And so, you know, there we are. We're stuck in a dilemma. We have to act or not act. We have to act and i guess our only choice is to do so with as broadly informed a perspective as we can you know working the metal levels that we're exploring here we are you see at a very peculiar moment in history the old framework i'm trying to understand the evil that's abroad science and now so we have bigger problem. problems but we are conserving good it's, good it's, it's impossible good. to care for each other more. What more must be done how we care the for the to overcome well, this progress? Between now we think of all the points. Literally for our
1: survival on the planet, we look have
0: to no learn to no re-honor the family without love the way of life. It is the small community, not the single community. I belong here. I am part of this body. We are one together. Back to build on our Back to talking to plants. Back realizing that everything is On the earth
1: as being with us, not for us. On a rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the Monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together bold scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the The Lindisfarne Tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, Gil Friend... The former co director of the Institute for Local Self Reliance relates some of the strategies and problems involved in helping urban communities gain self control and emphasizes the importance of diverse place based action in addressing the formidable challenges we face.
0: Good morning. Um, like other speakers in the last few days, I plan to deviate from the topic that I was listed speaking about, I will talk about urban alternatives, but I really want to take a broader view than that. What I'd like to touch on in the next hour is, uh, is the need for alternatives and their place in strategies for decentralization, the nature of some alternatives, and, and the limits to alternatives, why alternatives really aren't alternatives, some of what they are, what they aren't. Um, Like Hazel last night, I'd like to start by saying where I'm coming from. Um, My location in space is in a neighborhood. For the last five years, it's been a particular neighborhood. Adams Morgan in the inner city of Washington, D.C., racially mixed, and uh, low- to middle-income neighborhood. And that's my central place, and it's linked to the biosphere, both through my consciousness of ecological and spiritual webs, and, of course, the existence of those webs totally without my consciousness of them, and and also linked to the biosphere through the pathology of a a decaying imperialist structure. The arm of the ordinary galaxy is in there, too, but that's basically an afterthought, Uh, not a primary factor, except perhaps as it affects my crops through the movements of the solar system. What I've been doing there is working with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which is a uh, neighborhood-oriented research organization dealing with issues like food, waste, energy, housing, and finance with an urban focus. Finally, where I'm also coming from, and I guess that's reflected in what I've sketched out so far, is with a very strong feeling that the periphery is the center as we talk about decentralization and social change in this country. Or to use you know, an, an older, more mystical way of looking at it, the center is everywhere and the periphery is nowhere. Um, OK, with that start, how, I'd like to talk some about how I see decentralization and, and alternatives. And I think that the idea of re-imaging, which we've been talking about for the last several days, is, is really important in this context. That it, alternatives are, are a crucial part of the process of re-imaging. But there are a lot more than that. Now, I think we all have here shared values of, of community and cooperation. We see those as important aspects of a new kind of society. Uh, I think most people in this country would share those values if given half a chance. They've, uh, they're used to community to a large extent, I guess not as, as used to cooperation in our recent history. But I don't think those are very far away, and I don't think in that way we're very far away from most of the people in this country. There is a uniqueness in this group, and, uh, and, and a quality of an elite, which we touched on in the discussion after the meeting last night. And that's in that as we look at these values and the other things we're talking about, we have a capability of, of looking at meta-levels. I think most people aren't, aren't moving in and out of meta-levels as easily. And deal a lot more with, with the concrete realities of their day-to-day lives. And so where I start, where our work has started, Is focusing on common interests and and focusing on on concrete realities starting where people already are and so recognizing the importance of change of image but as we go out to talk to people talking not about image but talking about the daily life talking about species functions of food waste energy and shelter the the very material kinds of concrete realities and some that are less material like uh quality of education in a neighborhood quality of life in a neighborhood which you know which are are less material but i think are far more concrete than uh than image of a society Where, wherever we focus in that continuum the more or less material of those of those aspects of community life it's those i think that are the solid basis for commonality of interest and action. Now, commonality of interest, I think, has to recognize also that there are conflicting interests, and that's something that I want to come back to later on. But the key, again, is, is that starting where people already are. Pushing on images, I think, has a possibility of ignoring people's daily lives. I don't think we can do that any more than we can ignore images. They're inextricably interwoven. We have to keep them both in mind, all the time. So, uh, looking at that is partly a process of looking at technology, but it's not a technological fix because, uh, as we've seen, corporate America is is readily adapting to appropriate technology. Um, The old structure enfolding the new somewhat becoming changed by it as it does so. But I think largely preserving itself and distorting the new for its, own, for its own purposes, and uh, you know, we see that in the area of solar energy where we're being told again and again that solar energy, specifically solar generation of electricity, won't be economical unless it's economical for centralized power stations, that is, unless it's economical in a way that benefits existing energy and economic structures, not in a way that most benefits, society and most efficiently makes use of that resource. Um, And so it's not a matter of technological fix any more than it's a matter of changing presidents. There are structural as well as cultural and epistemological changes that are needed in the transition that we've been talking about. And so so with that said, I tend to think of alternatives as as breathing space in two kinds of ways. Maybe they're exoteric and esoteric. On the one hand, they're... They have an immediate function as economic self-defense. We've been living in a time of recession, in a time of a changing resource balance, changing relationship of the United States as a wealthy power in relation to the rest of the world that controls the resources that our our economic life has depended on, and people throughout the society are facing different degrees of squeeze, and I think we'll continue to do so, and I think that will intensify. Many Americans, well, America in general in relation to the rest of the world and many, many people within the society have a lot of fat that they can give up in that trimming process. A lot of people don't. And so one of the values of alternatives, I think, is providing some breathing space for the people who don't have uh, quite that degree of excess consumption, people who are already at margins of existence around food or energy or housing, people who, when their energy bills go up, can do nothing else than buy less food, and they may already be having less food. And so, structures like food cooperatives, um, like other kinds of cooperative activity on the community level, can begin to deal with holding off those wolves at the door a bit longer, and that's one kind of breathing space. Another, though, which is just as important is, um, comes back to what some of David was talking about yesterday in relation to power, and the relation between breath and power that it's not just breathing space in the sense of of, uh, staving off the disaster, but breathing space as a space in which we can breathe, in which we can take that calm center and look around us and see what's going on, and perhaps most importantly in in which people can begin to gain a sense of their own capability, gain a sense of their own power, can look around them and see what it is that they've created in their community through cooperation and say, huh, we've done that. That's not something that was done for us by the government out of benevolence or done for us by the government in response to our angry demands, which is a little better, but I would say not a whole lot better because still the center is outside. And so to the extent that alternatives, urban or otherwise, can do that, I think they have a very positive value. I think that's the real value of them is that sense of empowerment from from finding our power at the center, from starting from where we are and moving out from there rather than continuously looking for somewhere else where power is, where enlightenment is, where some, some kind of answer is. I think that value is especially strong as these alternatives mature from a focus on service and regulation to a focus on production and control. We've seen that evolution in, in quite a few areas uh, in our community and in other communities. One which I guess is maybe closest to other people's experiences around the issue of food alternatives, where people began late, well it goes, it goes back historically a long way, but in this recent cycle in the late 60s and the early 70s, setting up food cooperatives, cooperative buying structures where a few houses would get together, pool their food orders, gain a bit of economy of scale of being able to buy at wholesale prices and divide the food up. And and that's developed from that kind of informal structure to more formal buying club structures to retail stores, Uh, some staffed by volunteers, some retail stores which actually provide employment for people in the community. And so that's been one part of the maturing process. But then it's gone beyond that, looking not just at, at the retail aspect of distribution, but looking toward wholesaling, Um, regional networks, linking up stores, linking up uh, warehouses and and trucking networks to get still a larger amount of muscle in relation to that that buying process, and then looking beyond the wholesaling to processing of food and to production of food, both within the city uh, and in the countryside, but with links between the city and the countryside. That have been shattered by our national food distribution system. And so there's a movement there from a service of providing cheaper food to a greater control over a productive system that we once used to have, which I think is necessary if that system is going to be responsive to the needs of the people who have to live with it. Uh, Another example, really an example of that other aspect of regulation or control, is around the issue of housing. Uh, We've come to be very aware of the limits of alternatives in my community because we've been faced over the last three to five years with an incredible onslaught of real estate speculation. Uh, Our situation is a little unique, I guess, because real estate is the second largest industry in our city outside of the federal government. But it's something that's happening in communities around the country that um, partly the very process of the creation of alternatives has made the inner city more attractive. There's a vibrancy. There's a, there's a cultural vitality that is really drawing people in. Partly the energy crisis, so-called, has made it more expensive to live in, for people to live in the suburbs and commute every day. Um, those and other factors have been responsible for a drift of people back to the city, and part of the process of that has been uh, in a neighborhood like ours, which is an edge neighborhood, uh, these alternatives were able to spring up because rents and property were inexpensive, uh, speculators will move in, buy up housing stock, renovate it, kick out the people who've been living there for, you know, 5 or 10 or 20 years, and then sell the houses to young middle-class couples who are moving back in from the suburbs. Now, looking at that from the logic of any, any one of the component organisms in that interaction, from the point of view of the speculators or from the point of view of the, the people looking for housing in the city and wanting what they feel is a, is a better quality of life, it's a perfectly rational kind of interaction. But the effect is that the community that's been created through people's hard work over the last 10 years is decimated. The people who have lived there can no longer afford to live where they are. They've created a value which they don't benefit from, but which the speculators benefit from. Um, The speculator's enhanced selling price on a house is partly a result of the physical improvements on the house, but largely a result of the cultural changes in the community, which the speculator made no contribution toward. And so, there's been the pattern in our city of, uh, of this kind of speculative dismantling of a neighborhood proceeding sequentially from one area to another, and there are people who have been bounced every five or ten years from one part of the city to another, and are getting very tired of being bounced. Uh, how that relates to alternatives, though, is that the alternatives that we've been working so hard to create are very shaky. The, their base in the community can be dismantled by processes that are currently totally outside of con- our control. And one of the ways that we initially looked at that was, well, we have to regulate speculation um, through taxation mechanisms or, uh, or property control mechanisms. One proposal is to make, uh, make it illegal for anybody to own any more property than the, the property in which they reside in one other, in one other unit, which of course can be gotten around through you know, any number of imaginable loopholes. Another is the taxation approach, such as has been used in Vermont, where there's a, uh, a a highly progressive tax is applied to someone who owns property based. Bo- based on an interaction between the rate of profit that's realized on, on the sale of that property and the amount of time that the property has been held. People are severely penalized for buying land and turning it over quickly and doing so at a great profit. Now, that's, that's a workable mechanism. It's had some positive effect in Vermont, but it still doesn't deal with changing the underlying logic of the behavior that's going on. Uh, it still makes perfect sense for a private landowner to come in and buy land and sell it at a profit without regard to the effect of that action on the community. And so what we look to now is rather than trying to regulate speculation in the community, is look toward getting mechanisms for gaining the community actual physical and economic control over the housing and land stock on which its its alternatives have to be built. Um, That may involve mechanisms such as land trusting or the establishment of cooperatives, there are a lot of intricacies there. In the case of our particular, particular neighborhood, it's too late. The process has proceeded so far that the prices are so high that we really can't enter into that process. Had we had the awareness we have now five years ago, we could have done that, and I think many communities throughout the country still can. Um, you know, While the neighborhood is still considered run down, while it's still redlined by banks, um, that's the time to say, okay, nobody else wants this, we want it, we'll take it and rebuild it, in such a way that it can't again be easily taken away from us. And so it's in there, I think, that that the question of why alternatives aren't alternatives comes to the fore unless unless these efforts at at breathing space, at uh, at a small scale limited enhancement of the quality of life in a community, raise their horizons to include changing their social context. Unless they do do that, they may first of all divert us from that crucial task of dealing with that social context, but maybe more importantly, but certainly more pragmatically, unless that social context gets changed, these alternatives, which in various ways become threats to that existing power, haven't secured their existence, and in fact are creating, creating the very threat to their own lives. I think another aspect of these alternatives, especially the ones that focus on productive aspects, physically productive aspects of community life, is the whole problem of the worker-consumer split, um, which is, which exists, I guess, throughout all industrial societies, but is, has reached its insane peak in this one, where we're split in time. a division of time among different activities has become a split in reality, a, a split in people's image of what they really are and so we've seen the incredible reality of of workers striking against workers, workers seeing themselves as consumers being struck against rather than workers with common interests where an alliance could mean that uh, just other tactics other kinds of results are possible and uh, I think building those common roles, building that realization of common roles that, you know, even with the change from from industrial to service sectors, even if somebody is working in an office or for an airline, they're still working, they're still selling something of their time in return for gaining a living, and that is a common bond between almost everyone in the society and one that gets sloughed over uh, all too often. I think part of that process of of that dissociation between work and consumption has been the the commoditization of almost everything in this society. Um, Once a self-reliant country, I saw in one of the articles that Hazel gave out last night that in 1780, 80% of the population of this country was self-employed. Now it's about 10%. Um, Even without the self-employment, once a, a much larger segment of society was more directly connected to the fruits of their labor. But with the agglomeration of economic power, with the replacement of labor by capital, people's tools are now out of their hands. Now, partly that's been through willful action, such things as the Enclosure Act. Sometimes it's been by the so-called inexorable processes of the marketplace, which is what we see with the speculative process in our own community. And I think either of those cases is most vivid with our relationships to land and food. where food was on something that people had a very direct day-to-day connection with, and now it's, of course, uh, an item in the supermarket. So these tools have been taken from us, and they've been packaged, and they've been treated with product differentiation, and they've been sold back to us. And I think another really key value of alternatives, and urban alternatives, if only because most people in this country live in urban situations, is, is their role in reconnecting people to the productive process and to recreating an awareness of the unavoidable connection between production and consumption. Between production and consumption and labor. I think we we also have to deal with the, the really crucial question of alternatives and power. Uh, there's a kind of running argument, well, in my community and in the American left, between people who on the one hand say, well, this stuff is nonsense, we can't do any of this until after the revolution. Uh, you know, not that they're nothing, but they're small steps and, and, they're, and they're belittled as, as diversionary and as a wrong tack. And on the other hand, people who say, well, this is the revolution. You know, if we only get together and form food cooperatives and tool libraries and housing co-ops and tenants unions and so forth, that that these little pockets of sanity will gradually grow and as, as, as the system crumbles around them, we'll fill it out and replace it. I think both of those views are, are, are horribly incomplete. I think there's truth in each, but the real truth lies in some combination of both of them. Uh, the short term is crucial. Uh, and that's my trouble with the first view. People live in the short term. They live in the day-to-day. It's Wendell's example of the trout stream yesterday, you know, If you're just looking at the stream and trying to understand it, you can have one relationship to it. But if your breakfast has to come from it, then it's quite another story. And for most people, you know, we're talking about that. We're talking about each day. Yet we're also talking about the long term. Um, And so somehow, you know, we need to to resonate between those two and see the interconnection and see how, in fact, they can nurture each other. Um, Wendell's example of the power plant struggle on the Ohio River Valley last night, it's, it's crucial to the people in that valley to stop those power plants. It's crucial in, uh, in the Catoctin Valley, where a friend of mine has a farm, to stop a Corps of Engineer plan to dam up the valley and just flood out all the farms. And so the battle has to be focused on those individual actions. But it also has to be done in such a way that can shift our sights to the conditions that will just bring us to fighting the same fight over again 10 years down the road. In fact, in the Catoctin Valley, there was a dam that was beaten in the 60s. Now they're coming back, you know, with trying to do another dam in the same place because the reasons for the dam haven't changed. The reasons that certain people think it's necessary or think it's beneficial to their interest hasn't been dealt with. And without that, then we're stuck in fighting an enormous amount of holding actions which we really don't have the resources to fight. Um, The movement, whether it's the anti-war movement or the left movement or the decentralist movement, uh, has been incredibly tied up in the courts and in the prisons over the past 10 and 20 years, just fighting picky little battles that are of incredible urgency in themselves. You know, getting Leonard Crowdog out of prison, it counts. But our, our time and our energy and our money gets tied up in those, in those minor channels and blinds us, or diverts us at least, from, from the arenas that we really have to operate in if we're going to be able to move past these these constant, uh, these constant annoyances of, of, of the small battles. And so for me that means, again, structure as well as image. A, a continuing dialectic between structure and image and back to structure and back to image. And, and no real alternative to, to dealing with them both at once. And also, just sticks me right back again in the, in the need for action. And, and there there's an enormous problem, one which has been coming to my mind a lot in the last few days, because it's action in the face of uncertainty. Action in the face of a monumental <coughs> ignorance about you know, what the effects of our action will be. Uh, You know Wendell's Wendell's Trout Stream again. um, Wendell said there was no room for speculation because you know have to have this fish. And Gregory, I think, rightly pointed out that there is room for speculation based on what time frame we're talking about. I think we don't we don't know exactly what time frame we're talking about. We don't know to what extent we're talking about breakfast. Okay, I would say that it's that it's very difficult. I think it's very difficult to decide what time frame we're talking about, because I think there are aspects of immediacy, of tomorrow's breakfast, and aspects of of the health of that stream ten years down the road, and I think each of them may suggest different courses of action to us. And I think that, you know, I think that we can't be sure, uh, other than by going through those actions and seeing what happens from them, we can't be sure which of those is the correct way to proceed. And so... um, Our course then has to be focused on diversity and, flexi- and the flexibility of diverse actions and diverse strategies and also diverse time frames. And sometimes that'll mean different groups or different people focusing on a very specific aspect of that uh, and, and the whole incorporating that total diversity. I think often it has to include trying to incorporate as much of that diversity as possible within each particular action. Um, not having the power plant fight be a power plant fight, and then somewhere else in the society, someone talking about long-term, but trying to connect up that dialectic in in every arena of action, to the extent that that's possible. Um, Another problem around action is one that Bill has been bringing up very often, the the point that we create our opposites. And I think that's true, but I don't think that's the reason for not doing anything, because will inevitably create our opposites whatever we do. And so, again, we're stuck with, you know, with uncertain action and uncertain results and yet the need for doing something. I think we need with that to recognize the impossibility of not acting. For not acting, you know, whether it's out of caution or self-interest or whatever, I mean, we can not act for very good reasons, but not acting has effects just as well as acting does. And so, you know, there we are. We're stuck in a dilemma. We have to act or not act. We have to act, and I guess our only choice is to do so with as broadly informed a perspective as we can, you know, working the meta-levels that we're exploring here, uh, working with the full range of diversity of action and diversity of perception of what we're acting on. I think it also has to mean being careful that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Chicken and eggy is one of the phrases that's been running through my mind the last few days, and baby and bathwater is another. Uh, the image we were talking about last night of the screens through which uh, we look at other screens and create, create more, more patterns that we recognize. I think it's, it's really crucial not to throw out all the screens with an old set. And I think there's been an eagerness uh, here and among people who talk about the importance of new imaging to abandon old images linked to, to so-called archaic models. Now, those models may well be archaic. Marxism you know, may, may, is a 19th century-based uh, worldview and may be obsolete in many ways, but there are aspects of it which I don't think we can throw out as easily. Exploitation is a reality on this planet, and that's exploitation not just of the biosphere and of mineral resources, but exploitation of people. And that's a major stress on this system uh, you know, and however you view that stress, that stress is there. You only have to read the newspaper to see that the process of change throughout the world is in many ways a response to, to that perceived exploitation. And again, you know, we can't ignore where people are. People are, are acting in that way because of a particular understanding of the world they're living in, which can't be ignored. And you know, much as, as this body here is an elite in a good way with, with our meta-vision, we're an elite in a very da- dangerous way to the extent that our relatively comfortable positions allow us to ignore suffering on the material plane that people who are living in that suffering can't. And I think that, I think that as we approach this action in the midst of uncertainty... We also have to scrupulously avoid a static view of history. Uh, Barry's assertion, Barry Stein's assertion the other day that no revolution has, has ever worked, and his implication within that, that therefore clearly none could, and it's a dead-end tract even think in those terms, I think is very sloppy thinking, especially since he promptly acknowledged when he was pressed that China was an exception to the statement that no revolution has ever worked. Uh, Now, he said that it was an exception, it was the one exception to the general rule. I would say that it's the exception that that must that that it's the exception that must lead us to question that general rule. To question, you know, what about that rule is general and what about it is not. Um, Now, whether or not the Chinese Revolution has worked is something that you know, we have to set a number of criteria and check them out for it. Clearly the, qu- the, the nature of life in China has shifted dramatically in many ways for the better for the people living there. I think the people in China might say that the revolution has worked and I think their subjectivity is very important as we make our own subjective judgments about what has happened there. And I think, you know, as we, as we wonder about the the, gen- the generalizability of the general rule, we need to note that the Chinese Revolution differed from the Russian Revolution both because the Chinese learned from, from, the, from the horrible mistakes made and suffered by the Russians, and because they were dealing with, with very different economic and cultural conditions in their country. Now we have the opportunity of learning from that experience of revolution rather than just, you know, looking into the pail of water for 10 seconds and saying, well, there's nothing there. And and I think that can be valuable without, you know, without knowing in advance exactly what that's going to lead, lead us to, what sort of model. I think that can be valuable if we, we remember that the United States is, is a unique combination of events in the history of the world, and that that unique combination of events is going to require its own unique alternative as a new form of social and cultural organization develops. I think that we can't afford the loss of flexibility that's inherent... on in focusing on culture rather than structure any more than we can afford to focus on short-term over long-term, or on local concerns over planetary concerns or vice versa, or to focus on spiritual over material realities. I think we have to struggle with both the concrete and the image. I think we can settle for nothing less than focusing and working on all of those factors at once. And, you know, that's, that's all I'd like to say for starters.
1: Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy— apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org donate.